This afternoon we've got a lot of very interesting talks and we're going to start off with a talk that a lot of us have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and it's becoming more and more relevant in those who don't practice just HIV medicine but also any field of family medicine or internal medicine or primary care because of the emerging epidemic of opioid use in the United States. And this is something that, you know, we've focused a lot on pain control in our HIV infected patients. And we've had talks previously, but I think this one is probably going to be very interesting for people. Um, our guest speaker is Chinazo Cunningham, professor of medicine from Albert Einstein in New York. And she's going to talk to us about from pain management to addiction treatment. Chinazo, thank you. Hi, I'm um, very happy to be here today in Atlanta, coming from New York, uh, talking about one of my favorite subjects, um, opioids and HIV. Um, so my husband works for Quest Diagnostic, and we have stock and stock options. Um, and the learning objectives include um, understanding pain management strategies consistent with national guidelines, describing common, common mistakes in uh, urine toxicology tests, and describing the benefits of integrating buprenorphine and HIV treatment. So I'm going to start with a little overview of the opioid epidemic, um, and then talk about some challenges in pain management with opioids, uh, opioid use and HIV outcomes, and then finally the integration of buprenorphine and HIV treatment. So I'm sure all of you know, you know, you read the papers, you, you hear, watch TV, you hear the news about the opioid epidemic that this country is now experiencing. Um, so in the last couple of years, this is a graph that shows the um, overdose deaths related to opioids. And you can see that perhaps deaths are starting to flatten out um, in terms of prescribing opioids. Uh, so here's the overview that I had mentioned. And now we have our graph. Um, so this is a graph of overdose deaths involving opioids um, in the United States from 2000 to 2015. So you can see this uh, dramatic increase. Um, but if you look in the last couple of years, you see there's actually a plateau. So we might be thinking perhaps we're sort of, you know, getting in front of this now in terms of um, prescription opioids and the overdoses related to this. Here's the problem. The graph is dramatically increased for heroin and other synthetic opioids. And so this is really what um, we feel in New York and across the country. And other synthetic um, opioids in particular are fentanyl which I'm not sure about here in Atlanta, but certainly in New York, it's really become a big problem. So all this is to say, we're not, we're, we still have a long way to go here, that this curve is not bending anytime soon in terms of um, opioid-related overdose in this country. So given that we're, people are continuing to die um, from opioid-related overdoses, one has to think about how are we doing in terms of treatment. So you guys are all familiar with the treatment cascade for HIV, right? I mean, this is something that's been around for a while. Well, now we're beginning to think about this treatment cascade for opioid use disorder. Um, and so what this graph shows on the left is the number of people who have opioid use disorder. And what's really unbelievable and I think quite shameful is the, the bar, the third bar over is the number of people who actually get treatment. So this is pretty unheard of, right? So the gap between the people who need treatment and the people who actually receive treatment with evidence-based medication is really lacking. Um, I have to say that as, as a provider in treating opioid use disorder, I ha 
I don't think there are many other diseases that would have huge treatment gaps like this and cause outrage. But I think because this is addiction, you know, it, it, it feels different, we treat it differently, but really it's no different. And so we have a long way to go here. So I'm gonna um, walk us through a case that illustrates some of the challenges and issues around uh, opioid pain management and addiction. So JR is a 45-year-old Hispanic male with HIV, depression, and opioid use disorder in remission. He last used heroin eight years ago, and he's receiving HIV primary care from you for the past two years without any problems. He's on heart, he has good adherence, and his labs look good with viral load suppression. He's had low-level constant right hip pain for a few months, but now he reports that his pain is getting worse. He's tried acetaminophen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, physical therapy with little improvement. However, when he tried his friend's oxycodone, it helped relieve his pain. So this is a pretty common scenario that I see uh, in, in terms of my patients. So what are some of the issues that we all should be concerned about as providers? So in terms of pain and opioid analgesics, um, we do know that chronic pain is obviously very common in HIV-positive people, and it's more common in those who are HIV-positive than negative. Um, and in some studies, um, up to even 90% of people have been reported to have chronic pain. Um, and we know that there's diverse etiologies of pain, right? So it can be from HIV itself, um, from aging now, um, and from medications, although this is less common in um, today's era. We also know that opioid analgesics are more commonly prescribed in HIV-positive and HIV-negative individuals, um, with some studies showing up to about half of the people with chronic pain receiving opioid analgesics. We also know that HIV-positive people get higher doses of opioid analgesics than HIV-negative people. And in terms of comorbid illnesses, we know that substance use and mental illness are common among HIV-positive individuals. So putting all of this together then, it really creates a perfect storm because the risk of misuse and disorders is much higher in HIV positive than negative people. And so really this is, I think, you know, not only is this an important issue around opioids and pain management in our country, but it's even more important for HIV infected people for these reasons. So returning to the case, after gathering more history and conducting a physical exam, you're confident that the patient's pain is due to osteoarthritis. You talk to him about your hesitancy to prescribe anal um, opioid analgesics because of the risks of having a poor outcome. You both agree that referral to an orthopedic surgeon is a good next step. One month later, um, the patient reports the pain continued to worsen after his last visit to you, so we went to the emergency room and he was prescribed oxycodone and acetaminophen. This worked for his pain. And so he's asking for you to prescribe more. Again, for us, common scenario, right? So not only is somebody taking the medication from their friend, but now they're actually getting it prescribed from another doctor, bringing the bottle, showing I have proof that I got this medication, and I'd like for you to continue it. So we're sort of stuck in terms of what to do. So. Which of these treatment guidelines, and which of these responses is consistent with national treatment guidelines? You continue to prescribe the oxycodone and acetaminophen, but only for one month. You change from short-acting to long-acting oxycodone. You reduce um, the oxycodone basically from 60 milligrams a day of oxycodone to 15 milligrams a day of oxycodone or you reduce from 60 to 15 milligrams of oxycodone and you add clonazepam. 
Lights up on Washington Heights, up at the break of day, I wake up, then I got this little punk I gotta chase away. Pop the grave at the crack of dawn, sing while I wipe down the awning. Okay, um, so 45% of you are correct. So the CDC came out with new guidelines um, recently on prescribing opioids for chronic pain. Um, so these guidelines basically have three chunks of area that they address. So one is when to initiate or continue opiates for chronic pain. Another um, set of guidelines around the opioid selection, dose, duration, follow-up, and discontinuation. And then finally, assessing risk and addressing the harms of opioid use. So in the first bucket, we know, you know now when people have chronic pain, we really want to start non-pharmacologic treatment. should really be the first-line therapy. And then if we're going to use pharmacologic treatment, we should have non-opioid pharmacologic treatment. We also want to make sure that we establish treatment goals. And one of the biggest things is I think we tend to focus on pain, but really focusing on function is really important because often patients' pain is never going to go away, right, especially as people get older. And so it's, I think it's really important to have those very clear expectations to patients. And in fact, I'll say things to patients like, um, you know, you are probably going to have pain for the rest of your life. So let's just make that clear. And so what should the goals be then? You know, you know taking the edge off the pain or really focusing on your function. Um, and then in terms of so the opioid, opioid selection and dose, um, really, we should be prescribing um, short-acting, not long-acting, because we know that with long-acting, there's a higher risk of overdose. And we also want to prescribe the lowest effective dose. And so right now, there's a range between prescribing less than 50 or 90 morphine milliequivalents. So I just want to say for one second, this, this has actually gotten a lot of attention, the dose. And in fact, there are new policies that are about to come out from CMS and around HEDIS measures, specifically measuring providers and the number of patients they have above this 90 morphine milliequivalent um, threshold. So I was involved with the opioid guidelines and others, and, and my colleagues are really concerned about this issue because what we can imagine is that people who have been on opioids for years and years and years that we started on opioids are now all of a sudden going to have their opioid prescriptions drop precipitantly. And these guidelines do not say that. These guidelines say if we're starting patients or if we're increasing doses to have caution. But this has to be done on an individual basis. Um, also, we want to prescribe the, sh the least amount as possible. So the guidelines are less than three to seven per day. And in New York, we actually have our state just passed legislation a couple months ago basically requiring providers for new acute pain to only have seven days worth of opioids. And then in terms of risk and addressing harms, considering naloxone is very important, and a lot of states and cities now have standing orders for naloxone where people can go into any pharmacy without a prescription and get it. Also the use of the prescription drug monitoring program. So every state in this country has a prescription drug monitoring program, um, except for Missouri. And in New York, for example, we are required by law to check this database every time before prescribing any controlled substance. So I know that's not the case for Georgia, um, but, but certainly using this as one piece of information is important to see if people are getting uh, prescriptions other where, you know, how many doctors are getting prescriptions from. We also want to order urine drug tests. 
um, avoid concurrent benzodiazepines and opioids, and then arrange for addiction treatment if people have addiction. So another question, how are opioids associated with HIV outcomes? So I ask this question because those CDC guidelines are not specific to HIV positive patients. They're really, you know, sort of patients in general. And they're, and they're um, explicitly not for cancer patients. So is there something special about HIV positive patients that we, we know um, that maybe these guidelines should not apply to? So, for example, are opioid analgesics use associated with better heart outcome, heart utilization? Are opioid, is opioid analgesic use associated with better heart adherence? Um, is it associated with viral load suppression? Or are studies inconclusive about the relationship between opioid analgesics and HIV outcomes? Okay, so most of you guys are correct. Um, studies are inconclusive. So um, I think that in our minds for a lot of HIV providers, we have this idea that by giving opioids that patients will be retained in care, and if they're retained in care, then we have the opportunity to then, you know, counsel about adherence, to make sure that they have good outcomes, but we actually don't know this. So there have been actually few studies that have examined the relationship between opioids and HIV, and they really have conflicting findings. Um, those studies that looked at any opioid analgesics versus none, um, you know, one study showed better heart utilization, three studies showed no change. Um, in terms of heart adherence, no change based on those who um, were prescribed or not prescribed opioid analgesics. And then in terms of viral load, two studies actually showed worse viral load, and two studies showed no difference in viral load. And then in terms of misusing opioids um, versus no misuse, um, what we do know is that those who misuse opioids have poor adherence. So there aren't that many studies, and clearly this is a big issue because a lot of our patients are on opioids, and we really need to understand how these opioids are related to their HIV health. So going back to the case, so you use the state prescription drug monitoring program and you confirm that the patient was prescribed oxycodone and acetaminophen by the emergency room. You make an agreement to pres continue prescribing this, but only for one week. You order a urine drug test during this visit, and he agrees um, to address his osteoarthritis by seeing the orthopedic surgeon. Here's the results of his urine drug test. So opiates are positive, and oxycodone is positive. What does this mean? So the correct interpretation of the patient who's taking oxycodone with a urine drug test that's positive for oxycodone and opiates is, one, he's taking oxycodone and heroin, two, he's taking oxycodone and another opioid like hydrocodone, three, he's taking high doses of oxycodone, or four, all of the above. <coughs> Okay. Okay. Um, so this is a good split. So the right answer is actually all of the above. 
So let me say a word about interpretation of urine drug test. It is not simple. It is complicated. And my bet is, if you're like me, I did not learn anything about urine drug testing and interpretation when I was in training. And so doctors actually are terrible at interpret in interpreting urine drug tests. And the, the bigger problem is not only that providers are terrible at doing this, providers think they know what they're doing, and they don't know what they're doing. And so that's dangerous. So, um, so this is a, a screenshot of a, um, of, um, a guide that my colleague developed specifically on urine drug testing, and this is in your, in your electronic handouts, or whatever, electronic materials. Um, and it really just shows, you know, when is something a false positive, what can cause false positives, when should you expect what on urine drug testing. And so I highly encourage you to take a look at that. But I just want to review actually the common mistakes, because we don't have time to go into all of the, the um, nuances of urine drug testing. And so one of the biggest issues that I see is around oxycodone. So the first thing is you have to know your lab. You have to know what is being tested in the urine, right? And so in our lab, for example, there's several different tests that we can, we can um, order in, in terms of, you know, is there going to be marijuana on it? Is there going to be um, oxycodone on it? And so for, for oxycodone specifically, you must have an assay that specifically examines oxycodone, not just opiates. And perhaps your lab does not have that, or perhaps there's some tests that have it and some that don't. And so if somebody's prescribed oxycodone, it's really important that the test has that. The second thing is, if, um, if taken in a high enough dose, oxycodone can essentially spill over and, and make opiates positive. But opiates positive can mean a host of things, because it has to do with basically um, metabolism, right? So hydrocodone can be metabolized. Heroin, oxycodone, codeine, all can be metabolized to make opiates positive. And when we do a urine drug test, we typically do a screening one where we get a positive or a negative. And it's impossible to know what, what is making the opiates positive. And in order to know this, you must um, order a confirmatory urine drug test, which is a GCMS or ga gas chromatography mass spectrography. Typically, those are tests that are not done in, you know, in your own setting and sort of are send out tests. And those will actually give you a level of each one. So if it's opiates positive, it'll give, level, it'll give you the actual level of oxycodone, hydrocodone, um, codeine, and um, heroin. And so that's the only way to know for sure. The second thing is, as fentanyl um, really is increased um, in terms of its use, um, we, are, we have not detected this because our drug tests don't detect this. And so this is a big problem. The only way to actually see if somebody has fentanyl is to, to send out this confirmatory test. It is not in any of the screening tests. It will not be picked up. And then the third thing is around benzodiazepines. So at least in, in the Bronx, it's very common for psychiatrists to prescribe clonazepam. That's really the most common benzodiazepine that I see patients on. And clonazepam typically is not picked up in screening drug tests. So, so I, have, I have seen psychiatrists actually threaten to take patients off of the medication because they're checking their urine and their urine is negative. That's appropriate. And so again, if we're going to change management here, 
based on our urine drug testing, we better know what we're looking at. We better know that we're interpreting it correctly. And if you don't know, we need to look it up and we need to get confirmatory testing. Okay, back to the case. So after reviewing the results of the urine drug test, you order both a confirmatory, um, you order a confirmatory GCMS for opiates. The test demonstrates both oxycodone and 6-monoacetylmorphine, which is specific for heroin use. So the patient misses his next appointment with you, but he reschedules it a few weeks later. And at that visit, you discuss the urine toxicology test with him. He reveals that he relapsed with heroin because he just couldn't take the pain. He also ran out of his heart um, because he missed his appointment with you. So now what? So clearly, we're moving now from this patient in not just pain management, but really around addiction, right? Um, and so when thinking about addiction and opioid use disorder, um, you know, there's pharmacologic treatment and there's non-pharmacologic treatment. And we know clearly pharmacologic treatment is much better and much more effective than non-pharmacologic treatment. So that's the first thing. We have three medications in this country approved for the treatment of opioid use disorder. So one is naltrexone, which is an opioid antagonist, and then the other opioid agonists are buprenorphine and methadone. And so I'm going to really focus here on buprenorphine because my guess is in this audience, we probably don't have that many methadone providers, right? So in, you know, as a primary care provider, I can't prescribe methadone. Um, and at least in the Bronx, a lot of patients are not so interested in naltrexone. So how are um, methadone, the sort of typical opioid, and buprenorphine different? So most opioids that are out here that we prescribe, and including heroin, are full opioid agonists. Buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist. This is really important um, clinically for safety purposes, and it poses some challenges. But, um, both methadone and buprenorphine are, um, at the, act at the mu opioid receptor, and buprenorphine has a very high affinity for the opioid receptor, which also poses some clinical challenges. Buprenorphine is taken sublingually, Morphine is, um, um, methadone is oral. Buprenorphine comes in tabs or film. Um, for the treatment of uh, addiction, methadone is in a liquid form. They both have pretty long half-lives, 24 to 36 hours. And they're both metabolized through the P450 system. So one thing just to note about a big difference between methadone and buprenorphine is particularly for drug-drug interactions, methadone has many with antiretrovirals. Buprenorphine has very few and really not clinically significant. So in this way, it's easier um, in terms of uh, having patients manage on buprenorphine. So just one question in the audience. Um, I'm curious as to, and we can just do this with a, a show of the hands, how many people have actually completed the eight-hour waiver training, or for PAs and NPs, it's 24 hours, um, to prescribe buprenorphine treatment? Can you raise your hand? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so like four people. Um, is anybody actually prescribing buprenorphine? One. Wow. Two. Okay. So um, that's, I mean, I know there, there are some people in the audience that can't prescribe, but, you know, this is really one form of treatment that can make a dramatic difference to our patients. So going back to um, the difference between a full opioid agonist and a partial opioid agonist, so this graph is really important. So on the y-axis, you have the opioid effect, and on the x-axis is the dose. 
And so the, the line on the top you can see is a full opioid agonist. And basically what this means is the more you take, the more of an opiate effect you get. So, so these are all the opiates that are out there, basically. So at some point on this line, you stop breathing and you die, right? So this is very different than a partial opioid agonist. So initially on the curve, what you see is that the higher the dose, the higher the effect. But then you get this ceiling, this plateau. What does that mean? That means if I take 1,000 buprenorphine tablets, I am going to have the same effect as if I took three, right? And if the place in terms of respiratory depression is higher on that curve, that means I can't actually have respiratory depression, which means I actually won't overdose. So that is a huge benefit of buprenorphine. And for that reason, we really can have a different treatment system. So I'm sure you all know, you know the methadone treatment system. It's been around forever, right? And so it's highly regulated. Um, so methadone treatment can only happen. It licenses methadone maintenance treatment programs. It's um, regulated at the federal and state level. Um, uh, patients are required to have a certain amount of counseling, required to have very frequent visits and do urine drug testing, and the dosing is highly regulated as well. Often if you have to go above a certain dose, you have to get state approval. This is very different than buprenorphine. So it's still regulated, but the regulations are minimal. So the first thing is that buprenorphine can be prescribed anywhere. Emergency rooms, hospitals, clinics, mobile vans, anywhere. The second thing is that any provider, an MD, a DO, an NP and a PA can prescribe this. So just, it's only been in the last month and a half that NPs and PAs can prescribe this. So this is brand new and I think it's super important, especially for a place like here where there's a lot of rural providers. So physicians have to have an eight-hour training, NPs and PAs have to do a 24-hour training, and the training is free and online. Then after doing the training, um, providers need to get their DEA X number, so it's a special DEA number. And then there's no regulations around how frequently people have to visit or how frequently you're in toxicology tests or anything. And there's no regulations around the counseling, it's just that providers have to have the ability to refer for counseling. Patients get the medication in a community pharmacy just like get, they get any other medication. They can get a 30-day supply. They can get refills, which is very unlike other opioids. And again, part of the reason why is because of that pharmacology, right? It's safer. And uh, in the first year, providers can treat up to 30 patients at once. The next year, they can apply to go up to 100 patients. And then after that, they can apply to go up to 275 patients, uh, typically if you're in an FQHC. So the key differences here are the, um, between buprenorphine and other opiates is the partial opioid agonism, but another key difference is the way that it's formulated. So buprenorphine comes formulated as a combination therapy as buprenorphine and naloxone. So naloxone is an opioid antagonist. Buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist. They're in the same pill. They're in the same film. You might say, huh, how does that work? You have an agonist and an antagonist together, right? I don't know really any other medications that are like that where you have an agonist and antagonist together. Well, the way that it works is if you take the medication as prescribed, which is sublingual, the buprenorphine is absorbed, the naloxone is not. However, if you decide you want to get high, crush it up and inject it, the naloxone is immediately absorbed and you go into immediate opiate withdrawal. So for this reason, again, safer, less diversion, um, 
you know, people can get the medication in the pharmacy, they can get refills. So this is a big difference between buprenorphine and other opioids. So back to the case. Um, after you realize, after realizing that you can offer a patient buprenorphine to treat his opioid use disorder, you take the eight-hour training, you become certified to prescribe buprenorphine, and you get your DEA X number. At your next visit with JR, you offer him buprenorphine treatment. He's heard about buprenorphine, but he's never taken it. Um, he knows other people who are taking it, but none of them are HIV positive. He's worried about an interaction between buprenorphine and HIV. And he wants to know how well does buprenorphine work for people with HIV. So there was a study, a multi-site study that was done, um, finished about um, four or five years ago, um, that included 10 sites across the United States that looked at integration of buprenorphine and HIV treatment. Um, of these 10 sites, patients were followed for 12 months, and the study design was a little bit variable in each of these 10 sites. Most of them were pro prospective cohort studies, so they followed patients for 12 months, and there was one that was a randomized controlled trial. There were a total of 386 participants, and all of them were HIV positive, all of them had opioid dependence, and they were eligible for buprenorphine treatment. And basically, patients were interviewed and medical records were reviewed. So what did we find? So um, on your right um, is a graph that looked at those patients who got buprenorphine and how well they were retained in buprenorphine and looking at the percent who were actually taking antiretroviral therapy. And so the lighter gray bars are those people who were not retained on buprenorphine um, during the year, and the darker bars are those who were retained on buprenorphine for at least three out of the four quarters. And so what you can see is that percent of people who were taking antiretroviral therapy were, was greater than those who were retained on buprenorphine treatment. And then on the graph on, oh sorry, and then on the graph on your right, the other one, is looking at antiretroviral um, suppression, uh, viral load suppression. And it's the same thing, that those people who were retained on buprenorphine treatment were more likely to be virally suppressed. What about when you look at drug outcomes, drug treatment outcomes? Um, and so in this uh, graph, the red bar is opioids, the blue bar is stimulants, and the black bar are sedatives. And what you can see is that baseline, there's a high rate of opioid use. And with buprenorphine treatment in each quarter, you can see that opioid use decreases. And that was um, statistically significant. What's also interesting here is that stimulant use decreased. And I, I, I personally see this all the time. So this does not treat stimulants. This does not treat cocaine or methamphetamine. It treats opioid use disorder. But often, if patients are using both cocaine and opiates together, you remove the opiate and the cocaine goes away. And so, so this is actually one of the benefits. So it, it does not treat a stimulant, but we do see a reduction in stimulant use with, with um, buprenorphine treatment. Another point I want to make here is even though there's a dramatic decrease in opioid use, it doesn't go down to zero, right? So people, are, you know, there, there are certainly, this is not a miracle drug, it's not perfect. Um, and it's hard to remain abstinent, especially if you have addiction for years and years and years. And so while there's an improvement, I think, you know, we have to be realistic in terms of expectations that it's not going to be down to zero. What about other outcomes? Um, so we know that cocaine uh, is reduced with buprenorphine treatment. We know that quality of life uh, is improved with physical health and with mental health. 
Um, and we know that in terms of drug-drug interactions or safety, that there's really no um, um, problems in terms of liver disease um, or uh, antiretrovirals, drug-drug uh, interactions. So uh, to summarize, uh, the opioid epidemic continues to grow. I don't see us really being able to get on top of this for a while. Um, we know that there's a plateau in terms of opioid analgesic use, but heroin is, um, continues to grow. We also know that there's a large gap in treatment, and buprenorphine is one way to really address this gap in treatment. Um, there are many challenges to managing pain with opioids, including the interpretation of the urine toxicology tests, and it remains unclear how exactly opioid use is related to HIV outcomes. Um, but what we do know is that the integration of buprenorphine with HIV treatment is associated with many positive outcomes. Thank you. If you can make your way to the microphones if you want to ask a question. One question from the audience, it's a two-part question. Um, does buprenorphine have any pain alleviating effects, and if so, how much? Great, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, so buprenorphine is an opiate. So yes, it has analgesic effects. And in fact, um, there's an injectable buprenorphine that's been around on the market for decades probably never seen it, for, and, it's mar and it's specifically for people for pain. I mean, I've never seen anybody use it. Um, but so the buprenorphine that I'm talking about, the sublingual, is specifically FDA approved for the treatment of opioid use disorder. It's not FDA approved for the treatment of pain. However, we've actually um, done studies looking at patients with pain and, and what happens with their buprenorphine treatment, and we know that their outcomes are similar to those who don't have pain, and we also know that their pain is reduced. So, so it can give people analgesia. And I have to say, just my, in my, my style in working with patients is um, often the, 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 the exact case of this patient coming in has this history of substance abuse in the past, comes in with pain. Buprenorphine can be appropriate for the treatment of opioid use disorder to prevent relapse. And so for some of those patients, I will say, the only opioid that you are going to get from me is buprenorphine. And it should help with the analgesia, and it's really for the prevention of relapse for your opioid use disorder in remission. And so I sort of use buprenorphine in that way, and I have to say it's great to have that in my toolbox. And I know that if they're really out you know, to sort of get high or for diversion, buprenorphine is not going to be the medication. All the other medication that we all prescribe that's out there in the world is going to be much better if people really want to get high or divert medication. Well, we have a lot of buprenorphine questions. So um, the second part of that question, which a few other people have asked also, is do you just keep them on the buprenorphine for life, or do you try and wean them off? Is it similar or different from methadone maintenance? How do you approach it? That's an outstanding question. Addiction is a chronic illness. There is no cure, right? Do we ask this same question about patients with diabetes or hypertension or heart disease? No, right? It takes a lot of behavior change for somebody with diabetes to get off medications for their diabetes. Does it happen? Yeah. For most of my patients, no. 
because the behavior change that it requires are very difficult. The same thing is true with addiction. Can people stop taking medication for their addiction? Yeah. They have to make huge behavioral changes in order to do that. Are most people able to stop taking the medication? No. Right? And so often patients come in saying this too. How long do I have to be on this? Three months, six months, 12 months. Like there's some magic. And I say to them, how long have you had addiction? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Are you going to undo that in three months? I mean, come on. Right? So really, it's a chronic illness. Often patients require the medications. Not everybody. Those who can make serious behavioral changes potentially can come off of medication. And then they manage the, the addiction through non-pharmacologic means, so through their behavior changes. A fairly specific question. If you are going to get somebody weaned off of opioids or buprenorphine or methadone, um, does the addition of any other medications like tricyclics or SSRIs improve that success rate? That's a good question. So, um, you know, if you think about what people experience, what are they experiencing when we're weaning down opioids? It's symptoms of opioid withdrawal. So a lot of those are, um, you know, tachycardia, um, irritability, diaphoresis, um, and so that's really the adrenergic system that's being revved up. So medications like clonidine that block that actually can be very effective. Other, you know, other symptoms, they have diarrhea, abdominal pain, et cetera, so something like Imodium, you know, people get bone pain, so something like a non-steroidal. So it's really about addressing the specific symptoms that are with opioid withdrawal syndrome is, is to help them get over this. I have not seen any data on an SSRI or any other medications like that in terms of um, showing differences in outcomes if we're going to wean patients off of opioids. Another buprenorphine question, is it covered by insurance, Medicaid? I mean, how do people access it? So I have to say, I don't know about the state of Georgia um, if it's covered. I, I know in New York it is. It is covered. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I mean, and this is, this is, uh, this is a, an, a big issue too as, you know, in this political climate about it's unclear what's going to be happening, um, but, but there's a lot of more, actually more um, resources are being invested into opioid addiction because it clearly affects everybody. Switching gears a little bit and talking more about pain management in HIV patients, and just for your information, a lot of the pain clinics in areas around are focused on anesthesiology doing procedures, right. and they're not really managing chronic pain in some instances. So what would you suggest for chronic pain? I mean, you mentioned methadone for opioid you know, addiction, but it's also anybody could use it for pain management. You know, that's not illegal. Anybody right. can prescribe it. So what should we do in people with HIV who have chronic pain that don't respond to, you know, non-steroidals or other non-opioids? What are, what are the safe <laughs> options and why? Well, that's a million-dollar question, right. right? I mean, if I had the answer to that, we wouldn't even be, like, I wouldn't have, I'd be out of a job. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's, there's no one answer here. I mean, you know, there's, I, you know, I think that clearly we're trying to move towards non-pharmacologic treatment, so whether that's procedures, um, um, whether that's something like TENS units for, you know, electrical stimulation for neuropathic pain, um, or medications that are specific for neuropathic pain, like gabapentin or something like that. Um, but there is, you know, there, there, there is no great answer. And, I, and, you know, the other thing, 
you know, I, I feel this all the time, is like, you know, massage therapy, acupuncture, physical therapy, you have to have insurance. You have to have insurance has to pay for these other non-pharmacologic treatments, and that's a big challenge. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that anybody has the answer to, to this question. I do, I do think, again, though, coming back to, like, we really have to be realistic to patients. And, you know, I say, I say these words about you are going to have pain for the rest of your life. It is not, there's no silver bullet. There's no magic. I don't have magic, right? And so, so given that that's, a, that, that that's what we know, we have to figure out how to deal with that and how to manage that and how to think about getting you to the place where you can function well. But the idea that I'm just going to have something out of my pocket that's going to just like relieve you of all your pain is a bit ridiculous. And you know, I think the CDC guidelines revision sort of highlights some of the dangers of using things like methadone for pain control because of the danger of overdose as people escalate uh, when they shouldn't. If we are going to use chronic opioid therapy, one of the audience members wants to know, because we're in the middle of the obesity belt, if there is such a thing in the US, maybe the whole country's obese, but should you be screening everybody for sleep apnea before you prescribe oh, yeah. things that suppress respiratory drive? I mean, I, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't know that there's any research that has looked into this. Um, you know, I think, so COPD is the same kind of thing, that to, to use caution when you're concerned about the risk for um, an adverse event. And I mean, we do, you know, there are, there are data that look at who's at risk for overdosing, right? And so some of those data include people with mental illness, people with a history of substance use disorder, people with, there's family with a history of substance use disorder, uh, men at younger age. So those are pretty nonspecific, um, but I, I certainly haven't seen any studies specifically showing those with sleep, sleep apnea or other pulmonary disease. A couple of questions about urine drug screens. Obviously, you showed how useful they can be. Sometimes you get things that you don't quite know what to say. I mean, you know, we're aware of pseudoephedrine causing false positive amphetamine tests, and supposedly if you eat 20, you know, poppy seed uh, muffins this morning, you might have a positive opiate. Is there anything else that isn't a, a drug of abuse that causes any false positive Oh, results? absolutely. So this is what I would recommend. I mean, there's a, whole, a huge list um, of things that can cause false positives. Um, and so this is in that, treat, that guide that, that I showed you that's in your materials, that there's a huge footnote just listing everything. I mean, typically, one of the things, I mean, I, we see a lot of false positives for, um, for stimulants, and so pseudoephedrine is a big thing, and of course, people take, you know, like Theraflu or something like that, they don't know what's in it, and, and so we'll typically see that. But a lot of the antipsychotics cause false positives as well. Um, and so, it's, so and, and again, the only way to know this is you have to do a confirmatory test, because if it's a false positive, that's on the screening test. If you send for that for a confirmatory test, it'll break out exactly what is causing the test to be positive. So and if so a confirmatory test says this is methadone, you can trust that, that the patient's actually getting methadone from someplace? Absolutely. Okay. The confirmatory tests are, are, are level, yes. It's, um, really, there are, there's no false positives in a confirmatory test. The issue is you don't get, you know, it takes a week or two to get the results back. Go ahead. Uh, so this is not a question. Um, so there are two preparations of uh, uh, buprenorphine for pain. One is Butrans patches, which are uh, Q7 days, and the other is um, Buprenex. Uh, Belbuca, which is a Q12 hours buccal film, and they are only for chronic pain. They, um, 
they're FDA approved, they're covered by insurance, um, and they're C3, so they can be called in, they can, they're refillable, they don't require a special license, and nurse practitioners and PAs can prescribe them also. Great, thank you. I mean, I think, right, so the thing- And, and they're very, very, very effective. So the, the thing that's tricky about pain and buprenorphine is, so the other thing I mentioned is that um, it has a very high affinity for the opioid, the mu opioid receptor, a higher affinity than other opioids. What does this mean? So if I treat somebody with buprenorphine for their pain, and they're on that plateau that I showed you, and their, their pain is not adequate, re, adequately relieved, giving more isn't going to get them any more effect, because that's the plateau. And you can't layer on other opioids because they don't have anywhere to go because buprenorphine is sitting at the mu opioid receptor because it has a higher affinity for that receptor than anything else. So unlike other opioids where you're sort of like, oh, we'll add, you know, um, for example, if I'm going to put them on fentanyl, we can add, you know, a short-acting um, oxycodone. That, you can't do that with buprenorphine. So it's sort of like it's this or nothing. And so, so while it, it definitely, you know, it, it does, um, it is an analgesic, there are limitations because of the, the pharmacology um, with buprenorphine. So final question, and this is, might be one of those catch-22s. Can you prescribe buprenorphine in somebody that has a, a history of addiction, or do you have to have a current positive drug test? Right. So it's for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Once you get an opioid use disorder or an addiction, there's no cure. You have it for the rest of your life. So there's opioid use disorder in remission, right? And so basically, if somebody has that, they qualify for buprenorphine treatment, right? So once you have the diagnosis, you have it for life because there is no cure. Okay, great. All right, well, thank you very much, Shanaza. Let me talk, sorry about the AV problem. Yeah.